Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 96. I'm here with Richard Kapner of Hem Press, and this is Thursday, November 24th, 2022. Welcome, Richard. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for, you're actually a return guest because you were here before talking about the Babel Tower notice board, um, which you which you ran back then. I, I seem to have forgotten when that was, but uh, it was like, what, about last year, two years, last year, the year before, something like that. Yeah, so it was 2020 to, um, I think the beginning of, or yeah, the first quarter of 2021 for memory so just over a year it's very much a um very much a lockdown journal right that's right we had just started on the lockdown when we started it was only only just yes yeah. so so i guess um yes you're this is basically part of my um series that i'm doing this year about um, talking to a, a small press publishers so you're the last one of these for 2022 who I'm talking to. So there you go. Last, saving the best for last. Just kidding. <laughs> but there, <laughs> we'll see. But uh, so um, since last we spoke, what would you like listeners to know about you? What are some of your publications these days, you personally, and any other thing you care to share since since last, whenever was the last time we spoke? Sure. Well, if people don't, like, aren't familiar with... Um... With what I've done. Uh, my name is Richard Kapner. Um, I edited the Babel Tower Notes Board, um, as we just spoke about, and I currently edit Hem Press, uh, which started um, May this this year. Um, we also have a sound poetry imprint called Angry Starlings, which launched last month alongside uh, work by a certain Amanda Earl. <laughs> Just my doppelganger. <laughs> that one, yeah. Um, what else? Yeah, I write, I'm a poet, um, working across text and performance and sound and visuality. I have books out. Uh, you can find those on social, um, you just follow me on social media or just give it a Google. You'll, you'll, you'll find um, various um various pamphlets and collaborative projects I've done. Um, the next book is out 2024, but that hasn't been announced yet. So I'm not quite but, a, teaser. Um, <laughs> a teaser. And I'm doing a sound poetry piece in January next year um, called Orphanage. Uh, so that's my next, that's my next project. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's me. That sounds good. I, I also I will uh, in the show notes, um, which go on smallmachinetalks.com, will also be a link to hempressbooks.com, which has all the information, including information about you. So uh, 
people can find that out as well there. And you've talked a bit about Hempress. On the site, you explain why you came up with the name Hempress. I remember when I first heard it, before I saw it written down, I I, or I guess I had seen it written down, but in my mind, I was thinking about hemp press and then i was thinking about empress and all these different words that had to do with this with the combination of words and what you say is publications take on the spirit of garments which is really interesting to me say this emphasizes books as objects languages palpability and the confronting or joining of boundaries can you talk more about each of these books as objects languages palpability boundaries joining all those things all at once (laughs) Yeah, well, sort of taking people back to the very, very start. The the idea initially came when I was 22, and I'm almost 37, so that kind of gives readers the time frame as to how long ago it was. But oddly, oddly enough, talking to a primarily Canadian audience here, it was actually um, kind of inspired by B.B. Nickel, who I was really getting into at the time. And I was specifically interested in more intermediate, and so the idea of the, the, the image of pen was kind of initially tied to intermediate. So um, ideas of joining boundaries and going across boundaries and hem as an image being something that signified material and sensuality and pleasure and, and all these all these sort of touch points that are very important to me as a writer and as an editor. And then I mean, I was you know, just talking to what I was like when I was that age, not 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 anyone else. I was, you know, didn't necessarily have the experience to to put that into practice. I did make two very very small ephemeral art books, which were kind of aesthetic writing, but um, that's all I that's all I did. They were an edition of what the first, technically the first release, but over the years, the idea of pen always um stuck with me and the idea hand press stuck with me and even though you know, i'm very much interested in writing and literature across all of these forms i don't know if i um talk about what i do as intermediate per se because i'm still working within literature like i, I don't necessarily go out to the art gallery and put text on on, on walls and all that sort of stuff so um, although I kind of, in my head at least, moved away from intermediate, I still wanted a central image of going across different boundaries, even ideas around transgression, going over a boundary, and returning to the idea of sensuality and materiality, because I think one of the key things for me as a writer is language, and especially sound as well, has always been extremely physical and tangible to me, even more so than, than seeing and and uh, visuality. I wouldn't go as far to say I have um, synesthesia or, or anything like that, but certainly words and language and sound it very, very much feels like something I can pick up, hold, like very much like wet clay. So it's physical, but it's also very, very malleable. And so hem contains all of those ideas for me. Um, I think the book as the object is just a natural a natural extension of that. There is something inherently inherently magical about books as objects, as like as the the bound object. I think this is maybe disguised in our language as well, because we talk about the body of a text. 
we talk about its spine and its footnotes and its you know, language is, is what we call our tongue. And so I think the, the book contains all of these very, very visceral ideas for me um, and, and the way language is, is embodied, uh, which is something I wish to kind of heighten um, for for readers. And I think maybe the last the last point I'll make about it is, although we don't have a, consi a, a consistent visual um, aesthetic between books, I want all the books to feel the same. So it's not necessarily about um, prioritizing sight as the main the main sense, but um, I want readers to kind of remember how reading the book feels. Have that be a very, again, a very sensuous experience. Yeah, that's great. That made me think of, I don't know if you know um, the author Nathaniel, uh, who wrote uh, Je Nathaniel. I love that book. It's one of my... Um, one of my favorites, and, uh, mm. and they write uh, l'entre-genre, I guess, in sort of a hybrid in-between genres, and uh, also a lot about language and the body, so that, uh, that really reminded me of that. Uh, it's mm. def definitely an influence for me, that book and, and that author, so that's great. Mm. Now, but it's been like uh, since May, so there are four books and one Angry Starlings um, work, uh, sound, uh, poetry, um, album put out, I guess, a collection put out. I don't know what the right word is there. So that's a lot already for 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 uh, such a short time. <laughs> what um, when you started when you were thinking about starting the press? Like, um, was the timing an issue for you as far as um, when you could start it and and what you were doing in life and uh, I guess the transition from Babel Tower as well. Your uh, your online magazine sure i mean yeah the point of babel was i didn't necessarily want to talk about it in these terms at the time because i think it maybe would have detracted from the project but i very much thought about babel in ritual terms and so the the ritual being that with all of our concerns around um economic crisis during lockdown and not being able to see anyone or have any fun. Babel was this place to um, have abundance and have too much all the time. <laughs> uh, and so in ritual terms, that's what we did. We just put out a lot and we put out a lot nonstop. And the, this was very much the, the vibes we were, we were going for. And while that was a really worthwhile project and a lot of good came out of that, it, it was it was busy it was really hard um to to maintain um like very kind friends said oh Abel's going to go on for ages and ages and ages because it's so well received and well you know i i, I know i knew it wasn't going to go on for ages like it's just it, it, that sort of project can be maintained for that that long um so i if i call it a lockdown journey um I don't mean that as a you know as a yeah. put down like I it was very much for that moment but um I wanted him to be a lot more sustainable and a lot more um you know something that I could con I can continue for years and years um 
However, I think when maybe one of the errors I've made is what I made actually when I started when I started Babel as well was I just freaked out early on because I didn't think anyone was going to give me any work. And right. A lot of people gave me work, so <laughs> that, that's kind of why I'm sort of booked now till twenty twenty four. But um, in fairness, I think this year is going to be the only challenging year in terms of the publication schedule because we had JD's out in May. Yeah. We had yours out in October. And then two and in I, November. I really regret doing this now, but two in November. Yeah. So like that's October, November is too close together. But <laughs> what I'm going to do ongoing is just have one um or well, one or two releases every quarter. And that'll be a lot more evenly spaced. <sighs> um so that should be more that should be more sustainable. Also like I think I've learned that if you have ten things to do and no rhythm, it will feel like um, yeah. insurmountable. Like there's there's tons and tons of stuff to do, but if you have forty things to do and a rhythm, yeah, that's right, it's actually manageable. Yeah, and um, I think I've got with with ten plus, whereas with with Babel because the um, we just wanted to have this very anarchic, confrontational, abundant energy. Um, we just kind of put out like four pieces a week and then a reading every quarter and then a newsletter every month. I know. I was I, I was reading it all and it with joy. And um it's I learned a lot about the great work, especially of UK writers when you were publishing them on Babel Tower and well and and I was published there too, and other people who weren't from the UK as well. But what I saw there was really radical innovation, play, irreverence and humor, a diversity of styles and writers. So you do you see Hempress as an extension of Babel Tower or what would you like to do differently and maybe in, in terms more of content than in the I think if there's a, I do see the projects as fundamentally different in that Babel was very confrontational and anarchic and the way we presented ourselves online was um, meant to upset a lot of the stuffiness that I grew up <laughs> in with, with poetry. <laughs> um, and I think Hempress is just, it's just a fundamentally different project. Like we, we just want to present work in a way that's a lot more gentle and a lot more sensual and a lot more um, relaxed, really. And kind of let the work speak for itself as well, because with, with Babel, it was very much about um, how it was curated and almost like giving people the feeling of being bombarded with just, you know, language. Um, I kind of want the individual books to shine through a lot more with him and let let that stand up on its own. Mm -hmm. So, I, yeah, I, I don't necessarily see them as linked other than you know, some of the writers were initially published on Babel. That's how I found out about them and I wanted to work with them further. Yeah. So do you, um, so I guess it's, it's uh, at this stage invited, um, you invite people to uh, send you work. Uh, would you ever consider doing a call for submission or yeah is that something yeah so it looks like mid 24 mid 2024 we'll have um space <laughs> um we'll we'll see what happens there because inevitably like you know you ask people for work and they never give it you or you know some life happens or something like that so 
Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the no. future, but we've certainly got enough for uh, Q1 of 2024. Wow, that's and great. Then we'll see what happens. I don't know about Angry Starlings. I very much see that as two, three pieces a year, and I might do a call out for that at some point, but that's very, very much a a, a project within him as opposed to it, it's meant to be its own standalone thing. Yeah, like like kind of an imprint only with sound, right? So it's 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 a sound poetry imprint, basically. Only What's the word for imprint when it's not in print? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, can you talk more about Angry Starlings and also your interest in sound poetry? It's been, sound poetry has been with me for as long as I've been into poetry. It was something I learned about very, very early on. Um, when I left when I left school at, at 16, I, um, I trained to be a sound engineer. Mm. Did it for about a year or so, and then it's it's not it it wasn't a it wasn't an industry for me, put it that way. But I have always had a tremendously positive relationship to 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 sound. Again, sort of going back to the idea of it being um, something that's extremely embodied and uh, tangible for me. And so when I found out, I think it was probably someone like Henri Chopin, who I, was my first sound poet, or maybe um, Brian Geisen. But, and then, you know, people we sort of all know and love, like Caroline Burkhall and um, Bob Cobbing and BP Nickel, weren't, weren't far, weren't far behind. But <laughs> yeah, so it's just something, something that's always been with me. And then when lockdown happened, there was just all of these people doing visual poetry and scenic writing, which I celebrate. And I'm glad to that people just sort of discovered it and they were um, doing it for themselves um, and exploring themselves with it. But it, it did beg the question for me, you know, why hasn't sound poetry had this sort of interest? And like, in this, sound poetry historically has been very um, aggressive and very alarming and very um very i think it was your interview with danny spinoza who i respect very much yeah um she said um it was something along the lines of it might it might have been a quote from somebody else in that interview but the the idea that sound poetry has often explored the aggressive range of a masculine voice yeah and i think the excellent that's an excellent note um so i think maybe that's that's why that could be a reason why why people haven't taken to sound poetry as much. The other, so I, I didn't see it represented in um, the networks that I reside in, but also I didn't really see um, many outlets for it. Really, I couldn't. I didn't really see any journals uh, call out for it. No, that's true. Um, you don't. It was. I mean, we tried to put some up at the table, and uh, I'm struggling to think. Like, I'm sure people like um, Osmosis Press would put some up on their blog, and like, I'm sure they'd be open to it, you know. Right. But um, but on the whole, I didn't necessarily see the the want for it from a. From, from editors yeah and yet there are I mean, there are um i mean i think of the per, i mean performance some of the uh um work of iris colomb for instance like it, the stuff it, it's around it exists right i mean people doing 
all kinds of um, sound art and installation work with sound um, in mm. where you are and here too. So it, it does exist. It's just mm. how do you how do you share it, right? And most people just do it pro like um, self-publish through um, through say Bandcamp. Like here we have um, mm. here we have uh, uh, several people or at least a couple of people in Ottawa doing that. So. Um, Sure. Well, kind of just got a rich, a rich heritage of um, yeah, of, of, of sound poetry. Um, but I mean, I th yeah. So as, as as you rightly note, the poem root guys in England have been doing that for for a while. I think my concern was there weren't any publishers yeah putting out. And in terms of the um, resurgence of interest in visual poetry and and semic writing, I didn't see that same resurgence in um sound poetry yeah that makes sense we what we have here which is uh which was kind of um something different about ottawa is for years i don't know if he still does it but we have this um uh, writer bookseller publisher named jw curry and he runs a sound a sound collective uh called quator galore and what they do is they had a hmm. whole every um so many years he would put on something uh, called massage galore and he basically worked with a lot of um, local usually poets but didn't have to be poets and they would put on a performance as well and it was it was fantastic he, he's a huge fan of frank zappa so there was a lot of frank mm. zappa stuff plus all the all the like you know um he actually did um a marathon reading of BP Nichols, the martyrology outside at the gazebo behind the Supreme Court for like a couple, it was like a couple of days. I think he just like, mm -hmm. just come and listen to him do. So yeah. And, and, and that, and then from there, there have been some people who've continued to work as um, with sound poetry. Uh, Nina Jane Dristick is a local uh, writer and also she does sound poetry and she has a band camp with some of her work and she's worked with other people too we see more more women involved in this group and there are a few others around that i've seen too here so i feel like i i can't think of though right now like in the states where do we go for sound poetry in this can you think of i at the moment i'm lost i would have to look it up i'm sure there are but i just can't john yeah. bennett's done yeah, off the top of my head, Tracy Morris is very good. Okay. Um, and oh God. Yeah, this is the problem with the Angela Rawlings is um, Canadian, isn't she? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm at a loss too. I mean, the the one that immediately comes to mind is um, is Tracy. I think it's Tracy Morris. Is is her is her name? Um, but other than that. I might have to um, go back to you know, go back to the internet and have a have a look through for some um, for some moderns. Years ago and years ago and years ago, like Jacket Two did a feature oh. on contemporary sound poetry, um, which, from memory, explored um, sound poets in Europe and Canada. I, I don't remember there being many Americans there. Um, so I'd have to I have to revisit that. There you go. Well, something something we can research for sure about jacket too. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so um, what? So yeah, that makes sense. So, so your interest in sound poetry came a lot from this work that you were involved in with being a sound engineer, and and then yeah, that that makes sense. I never um, 
I've kind I've enjoyed some of it, but my issue is I seem to have some kind of physical reaction to loudness. So um, I can handle certain sound poetry, but um, like, and it's not all this way, but when there's screaming, I can't, I can't, just like same with music, I can't handle really loud or aggressive sound, like music. It, it's just, it. I know some kind of trigger for me. So I, as mm-hmm. and I, as much as I love the idea of sound poetry and there's a lot of variety, uh, some of the times I have to kind of not go to performances just because I can't handle the screaming. So when it happens, even when I appreciate all the variety and all the play, for me, that's, that's uh, physically an issue. So I, I, I feel a little ignorant about sound poetry just because I, I have to, I, I stay away from, from it. I tend to stay away. Although I enjoyed, I listened to, uh, um, Susie and Chris's, uh, and also, you know, uh, that was fun to uh, listen to the, the, your first angry starlings, uh, um, what what made you uh, think of um, asking the, or inviting them or, or did they approach you? I think they put something online um, saying that with, they were doing this collaboration. I think they were advertising the actual performance itself. For people who don't know, Echolocation by um, Susie Campbell and Chris Kerr, which was the first release on the Angry Stylings imprint, is a recording of a live performance they did at Kingston University, where one of them is blindfolded and they attempted to find each other through various grunts and wails and and vocal sounds. And so they, they were advertising that performance and I already wanted to do Angry Starlings at this stage. And I asked I asked somebody else if they had anything thinking that was going to be the first thing to put out. Um, and I'm I'm still waiting for that. But um, <laughs> the Chris and Susie were doing their thing, so I said, "Can this be recorded? And can I have it?" Please? And they um, were willing to um, willing to oblige. And I'm I'm a, I've been a big fan of both their yeah. both their writing for a while. And um, I worked with Susie on a like she she did some writing for Babel back in the day. Yeah. And um, so it's. It was great to, I was really just willing to just throw myself into it and be like, just give me whatever. And that's great. Um, they did not disappoint. And where did you come up with the uh, Angry Starlings uh, name? What? Where did that come from? <laughs> it came um, from my unconscious. So I think ever, ever since I was a child, um, I've just my something about my brain has always just tossed up words or taken words that are around me and just kind of um messed about with them and i was and it still happens so one day i was um just walking around i think and the the phrase angry starlings <laughs> dropped into my head and um i liked the, the and the R sound yeah. um, and how they were kind of related and I was just kind of playing about in like just sort of kind of enjoying uh, those two words together and then I was thinking about Starlings and um, a lot of the uh, a lot of writing from the like what what I would call for better or worse the golden age of concrete poetry like Bob Cobbing and Omri Japan and right. so on. They were always going on about birdsong. 
and you know when something doesn't leave me like when my brain tosses something up and it doesn't leave me i um research it it turns out starlings are assholes oh they are assholes. i was gonna so, ask um, you <laughs> yeah. so it makes sense and i, I like that yeah, I like the sound too. And and I think of the, I guess that there's a, a murmur, isn't it a murmuration of starlings? Isn't that they get, um, I found out recently that it's an unkindness of ravens, which I thought was hilarious. Ravens, mm. I guess, are unkind. But yeah, we, I have a, Rob McLennan often, uh, he says it's a pint of poets or something like that. So I don't know. I think it would be more like a pitcher, but that's, that's another <laughs> or several several pictures of that uh one of the things you mentioned uh is um the press ugly duckling press you i think it was on twitter you said it's influenced you so it's an american press that began in the 90s as a zine uh so which publications came to your attention and you, can you talk about what aspects of the press you see as influential for him press well with with ugly ducklings it's very much what what you noted there they started off as a zine um I think when I started to explore contemporary poetry more maturely, it, I was very, very excited that it took critical theory and used that as a as a source and a material for language, because um, that was just very exciting for me. And there was a lot of... Um, I liked the forms of language that tossed up. One of the things that happens with that is um, contemporary poetry can get very wedded to the academy, and um, one of my one of my little burns was um, you, you used to be um, that most contemporary reviewers seem contractually obliged to reference Derrida at some point <laughs> in the in the and that I'm saying that as a staunch staunch defender of Derrida but yeah. the um it, it still it still holds that perhaps things are out of balance here, including some of the types of writing which might be criticized for for leaning too too heavily towards the theoretical. That's that's real. That's just really, really inspiring. Especially like me, if you had to like drop out of a PhD because you have no money, you know, yeah. it's, um, you can just um, pick up and go. And another press, um, and actually, also just one point on Ugly Duckling. Their books are really lovely, just a whole. Yeah, and I very much wanted um, again those sort of vibes with him. Another press that has been extremely important to me was Lay Feig. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love Lay Feig. Incredible. Um, I don't, I don't think they do that much anymore. I think they got bought out by LA reviewer books. But, oh, okay, That's um, certainly back when I was younger, they, um, the, they used to curate these uh, series um, of of texts which they called trench art i think but um they really just challenged publishing models so one of the books i'm just looking at my book my books now one of the books was um words of love by mark rukowski i think um which is an index of all of the words shakespeare used in his sonnets 
And that's, that's, that's the yeah, I love that. I love that sort of thing. <laughs> Amazing. But alongside that, they also publish constraint-based novels and poetry, and um, they published um, long-form lyric poetry and text with photographs and also texts by um, folk who weren't from a literature background. So they published uh, books by photographers and sculptures. Um, this um, affront to publishing models. And also like a lot of my intellectual um, furniture comes from things like language poetry and conceptual writing. Yeah. Which obviously is about publishing um, traffic reports and yeah. things like that. So this idea of what could be done with publishing was very, very exciting to me. So um, that's something uh, readers of Hem Press will see over the coming years, this um, this challenge of um, publishing models is, is what, what I was getting at. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what see uh, see what we can do uh, with uh, that. I will also share uh, the link to Le Figue on there as well. So, since we're talking about the small press, do you do you have any particular ideas about what the role of a small press the small press is in general these days, and how do you see the role of Hem Press in that? If there's if there's a generalization to be made, or something more specific to uh, to work on there. Sure. I mean. There is very much a monoculture, and that extends to um, poetry as much as any other cultural sphere. If I was to make a gentle criticism, it would be that big name presses and the awards culture, especially in England at least, does seem to prioritise a certain range of poetry. And I, and I do think there is a range there, it's just within certain parameters. Again, I, I'd want to say that with caution because there is a lot of traffic between small presses and, and big presses. Um, there will be big name poets who publish with indie presses and then they'll yeah. go off and make, publish a full collection with so-and-so and win an award or something. But um, I think small presses um, maintain diversity. Um, and not only do they maintain diversity, they nurture um they nurture talent that big presses later pick up so without small presses you 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 don't have a poetry world whether or not it'd be a poetry world of big presses might be up for discussion but i certainly think without small presses you um there just isn't a network there isn't a community there isn't a scene and it's not just publishing it's the community making aspect of, of small presses, whether that be um, putting on readings or you know, some do podcasts or getting involved in little charity events, which I know you, you do, Amanda. Yeah. I just think a lot of the energy and vitality comes from small presses, although I am I am biased. <laughs> well you've yeah you you had a um you had a um a fundraiser uh, reading um, after uh, Roe versus Wade was uh, was uh, knocked down in the states, and uh, we had we had that reading already. So you've already started with uh, with that sort of thing in your in your as part of your your work. So uh, that's really great that you would do that. I think it's it's commendable. 
so yeah so what do you see then i guess as a as your role in in that in that kind of um in the things that you mentioned just just a bit foster that foster that kind of diversity i mean we i'm very very conscious that hem press exists in a network of small presses across the uk and ireland um just thinking off the top of my head there's you know osmosis press and Bia Bua and the 87 press and Guillemot and um, oh god who else <laughs> i'm sure there are tons more there's um arc um i think not arc press but arc um is is their thing and it's about existing alongside them you know being part of a being part of a supportive network as opposed to um acting like there's just complete autonomy um which for you know for, for an individual press which i don't think is very it's very helpful not for the press and not for um not for not for the wider network in which a press would exist so it's a bit of a, bit of a blase answer but honestly like it's, it's two it's two release books and and to um, be a part of that exchange yeah i really i really find it a little bit like um that i think this is changing but it used to be that um some small presses at least here would take on a kind of a i hate to say it but it was kind of an arrogant and competitive way like oh we're we're best because we do things our way and i can't stand that like i'd rather have a community working together and have different presses support one another and i feel like we have that a lot more at least at least that in my own like i've been involved in all this since 2000 so for over 20 years now and and i just i do feel like it's a lot more um, of a collaboration between different presses, between all kinds of different groups, and I really—that's what—that's the press—that's the world that I want to be part of, not the uh, not the arrogant, competitive uh, kind of world. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> There's enough of that mm. in the world as it is. So uh, that's why one of the reasons that I'm I'm part of all this, and uh, certainly one of the things is, is of course. Um, I've really gotten to know a lot of uh, UK writers and also uh, and visual poets and um, and presses in the last few years since really since since the first lockdown is when I've gotten a lot more. I did a little bit with um, visual poetry world. I had like I have a pretty I had a pretty good following of like I followed a lot of different um, visual poets from all over the world. Well, especially um, like in in Europe and in North America, and some in India and in different places. But uh, yeah, so so this is it's it's really um, been a good thing. If only if only if we have this issue with Twitter, though, I hope we'll all find each other again somewhere else, and <laughs> which is a little frustrating. Um, um, so the other thing I'd like to know is, um, you seem to know how to do the business of publishing early on, like barcodes, a shop where people can buy the books, contracts. How did you learn how to do this? Because a lot of micro presses and small presses I've been involved in just start and learn as they go. They don't, a lot don't do contracts or barcodes or even ISBNs, but, um, for me, it seemed like Hem Press was professional from the start. How did you learn to do all these things and why, why do you think this is important? Um, I think they will help certainly. Um, I think my my position on uh, having you know started a press and gotten it up and running has been um, 
it's there isn't an individual part of it that's that's necessarily complicated, but all the parts together are quite complex. And if you can get all those parts slotted in, then the the, the machine kind of you know it begins to it begins to run. I think if I hadn't done Babel, I would have been um, way more daunted by that's that complexity. Um, even something like like now that I typeset, it's you know I enjoy it and it's really easy. It's not like a daunting thing at all. But um, before Babel, just you know that that word typeset seemed very impressive and very you know um, very alarming. But um, having done having done the journal, it was um, it was just good practice. And good practice to um, know how to advertise writers' work and how to curate and design uh, a space. The only things following that that I had to learn was nitty gritty stuff like ISBNs, yeah, um, and cover design, which I had had a little bit of experience with before anyway. So. Um, like all of these things that the general public might think a publisher does like print books you know like i've got a very lovely printer who who, who will do that practical piece you know so um it's i think yes so i think babel helped i think also having books published helped as in my writing um because being on the other side of that process and um, you know, having contracts that I had to sign, and um, seeing what the seeing how the editors typeset my writing, and yeah. how they sort of circulated it and advertised it, that was um, useful just to get into the headspace. And once I had those pieces together, I felt a lot more confident to just kind of go for it. Um, like I do very much want Hempress to um, exist in the world. And I think having stuff like ISBNs and being able to sell through um, booksellers is is important to do that. You know, I think I had a conversation with a bookseller. It was the first bookseller I ever spoke to, actually. <laughs> The first question he asked was, uh, "Do you have do you have ISBNs?" And I said yes, and he replied, "Oh, you spoil this." So <laughs> um, I think it's it's if you I mean don't get me wrong, I've been with non ISBN publishers, and there were there were some really really there's some really great presses out there who who are doing those sort of books as well. But I think the the vibe that I wanted for the hem press was one that could exist in in a wider publishing world. Here we have a program called the Public Lending Rights Program, and, and uh, books with ISBNs are, of course, put into the um, library and archives um, here. And um, what happens is, is authors uh, get uh, a little bit of money. Uh, well, depending on how many books they have, they could get quite a bit of money every year for uh, for um, basically people taking books out of the library. So. The ISBN is actually important <laughs> mm. for that because it actually helps. Like I think I get um, 
for Kiki, I actually get like $100. So uh, annually, which is, you know, I mean, it's nice, it helps. Uh, so that's nice. And then we also have an access copyright, uh, which is about, um, uh, it's a amount of money um, based on the number of, of pages you've published and you, you get, um, you get a kind of a group amount, uh, you share a group amount, and it has to do with um, work that has been co uh, copied, I guess. Uh, that's a, actually a controversial issue here right now because of um, universities wanting to um, basically copy and use the work for free and, and uh, authors um, saying, but wait a minute, <laughs> you know, um, so that there's, uh, there's an interesting group called the Writers uh, Union of Canada that I belong to that's been fighting to um, gain um, um, a better, um, basically, um, rights for a better copyright um, uh, here. So, but I mean, it's, it's all, um, you know, this is all part of learning to be a publisher and stuff, which is, uh, it is it is daunting at first, but there are also plenty of people around who will give you advice, I find, like, um, as well as just listening and seeing what you uh, what you're doing. So that's good. Speaking of advice, of advice, do you have any advice to offer for anyone thinking of starting a small press? Oh, God, I don't, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think um, I would say, and this, this is also advice for people who want to start a journal, um, curate at the beginning. Because what that does is set a it sets a um, like kind of stand standard is a horrible word, but it sets a sort of a the tone for what you want to publish. Um, and when you put out a submission call after that, people will know. Does people will know the, the sort of work you want, and that will be a lot more valuable than um, you know, endless endless paragraphs on your submission policy page about you know what you know, you you're trying to describe the sort of work you want um i think it's, it probably doesn't count as advice but the the sort of checklist i wish i had when i was starting out was and this is assuming you want to do stuff like isbn's but the the checklist I wish I had was web hosting, which is a lot. It's a lot easier these days yeah. with Squarespace, and Wix, and if you can stomach it, WordPress <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's the printer would be the other point. So, are you going to make books, or are you are you going to get a printer to do them? Um, if you want to do ISBNs, then obviously, how does your um, actually is it? Is it different per country, ISBNs? I think so, because in Canada, like, it's not that hard. First of all, ISBNs are free here. So um, okay. you, you basically, you have to have a press. Um, and then um, th through the, like, you can't, like, it, you basically start with a press name and then you go through um, Library and Archives Canada and you register that and then you get, um, they give you an ISBN and then you get a block of numbers that you can basically, they, they assign you. So you have so many and then you have to apply for a new one and stuff like that. But it's all, okay. it's all free here to do that. So whereas I don't think it's the same in the States because I've seen... Um, like say uh, uh, presses like a sort of vanity companies uh, advertising that they'll they'll get the ISBNs for you as if it's some kind of difficulty and here it's really like that's mm. the easiest part but the barcodes are not and there that's that part's different that part's more difficult uh, I don't know a thing mm. about doing that <laughs> myself. 
Yeah. Well, in in the UK, it's it's a little bit pricey, but a lot of the um, places who will who will sell you bar um, ISBNs do it do deals as a bundle. So I think I spent something like two hundred quid or ten ISBNs. Um, and then the barcode image is separate, so it's something like twenty quid per image. Um, so I think that would be another sort of tick box for people who want to start a press. Um, social media, like if you, I think, like I'm, I'm sort of thinking out loud, but if you've got if you've got those pieces, then you're pretty much you're pretty much good to go. I'd probably budget. Um, I'd probably ask somebody to budget around 500 if they wanted to start a start a press um but then if you, you know, sell 100 copies of your first book then that just becomes a pot of money you could just keep on using for previous for, for yeah. you know um, coming publications and obviously like there's the hope that that will that pot grows um but i think that would like that that sort of very practical advice is what's is what's useful for me i, I, I don't i don't have a lot of use for the um you know you can do it isms like I, I like the down and dirty like this is this is um this is what i had to do to get get hair up and running and i think if i can do it anyone like any anyone can not to be self-deprecating like the only the only real challenge for me was book design um, and not even typesetting because I found that like weirdly intuitive. It was actual like um, cover design. Oh yeah. But once once that clicked for me, it was off to the races. Um, like I, I really quite enjoy it now. But um, but if if book design is the most daunting thing for me, then. I can't imagine like any other part of the process is going to be daunting for anybody else who wants to start a press, you know. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, what about your own work and how it connects to what Hem Press is doing or will do? Can you talk, do you see a connection between uh, that? Yeah, like, because I read the question before the interview and I was like really trying to think about it. Like, oh God, what's the connection? <laughs> and then I kind of, the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I realised I hadn't ever thought about, thought about it um, in the past. I mean, I think my writing um, is quite concerned with unloved forms of language, whether that be language that's dismissed as um, errata or ephemeral or um, too raw, or even just completely the opposite, like too just too dense and too alienating, or too um, too like I'm, I'm quite interested in what triggers people um, to make assumptions of um, pretension and elitism. Like I've always found, because if you ever push people on those terms that they're using without fucking thinking about it and they, they they just kind of fall apart they, they don't know what the actual um assumptions that they're bringing to the table are. and so one of the things that i wanted to do with my most recent release on be a Bua 
um, the the voice without was to just kind of really really push on that wound and just to try and like see, and push on those those types of language and see what kind of came out the comes out the other side you know um, but yeah so this is all to say that um, I I have a soft spot for the types of language that isn't um, compressed lyricism that one might usually find in in poetry. Um, I I guess that kind of spills over into him for us. Um, like I, I think with with your with your pamphlet, um, the erotic in poetry is still very maligned, um, <laughs> and not, not only is the erotic in poetry maligned, but long form narrative is as well. Yeah. Um, so to be able to put that book out was um, was something that I, I very much wanted to do. And with James's book, um, j- sorry, this is James Knight, Cosmic Horror that we just released. Yeah, today is release day. Um, <laughs> today is release day alongside Joss Allsop's yeah. um, Purge Fluid. But Cosmic Horror takes the language of genre. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny seeing horror and sci-fi and cinema because it's quite you get horror films and sci-fi films that are quite highly um, regarded, but horror in literature still seems to be quite looked down on. And I, I like the idea that James um, messes about with the operating software with poetry by um, hacking it with with genre, you know. And um, and I and it's. I'm just lost for words when it comes to Joss's oh. writing. So, um, it's just it's it's exuberant and just uh, <laughs> I just I don't know how to I don't know how to um, talk about these these sort of word combinations and the like linguistic textures um, that he creates because. Because again, like, I don't know how other readers will um, respond to it, but for somebody who has this very, very visceral response to language, like I just, yeah. it it takes me beyond my like beyond myself in a very um, not in a like off of the fairies transcendental way, but it um, it's like being drunk. You know, it's just absolutely yeah. very. Um, like it's it's pleasure, but it's deeply rooted in physicality. Like it's not it's not escapism. You know, it's it's, it's very very hard for me to talk about that text. Besides that, I just love it. It's um, it's it's one of the most extraordinary debut collections I've ever read. Yeah, no, I I love. I got a chance to read the uh, PDFs uh, um, earlier, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I have I have a lot to say about both. Uh, both those books and also uh, I, I also love JD House's uh, Just Meet Not God, which I insist on calling Just Meet Not Good. <laughs> I just like fixed that like several times in my in my writing about it. But yeah, I love I love uh, all of those. So we'll we'll talk about that. Do you have uh, what what about forthcoming publications? Uh, can you uh, can you give us any uh, teasers about what's coming with Hem Press? So in March we've got um, a pamphlet or chat book. If you're Canadian, in <laughs> from Nikki Dudley, um, right. called "Exorcism Becomes Habit," 
which um, she describes as um, like an exorcism of negative emotions and um, sort of bad experiences. But the actual text itself is um, is is quite extraordinary. Um, like I've we've sort of certainly been aware of Nikki's writing for for a while yeah. and her great um, presence as an editor and and writing coach for a lot of a lot of younger folk in in the British poetry scene um and this is um like I, I asked her for something well actually no she gave it me to to get feedback on and I loved it so much <laughs> I was like I want this. um so so that's coming in March there should be another pamphlet coming in March which hasn't yet been announced and I, I still need to play that one close to the to my right. chest because Darn. the writer lives in a country where Twitter is illegal mm-hmm. and it's made it very difficult to communicate with, mm-hmm. with, with therefore as a publisher um through no fault of their own um it, it just it just drastically slows down the process <laughs> of um <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to put out a book by then um that's so intriguing already <laughs> yeah all being well um that should be uh, or they 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 should be um, the next publications alongside a sound poetry piece that I've got coming out through Angry Starlings Great. called Orphanage, um, which is for uh, the Japanese improv um, improv people, experimental musicians, uh, Ami Yoshida and Yuta Kawasaki, who did a collaboration in two thousand and three called Astro Twin, which I heard on um, late night radio back when BBC Radio used to um, play experimental music um, Mm. past midnight. And um, I just, the experience of listening to them never left me. Um, And I I struggled all this time to find um, recordings under the name Astro Twin, like as individuals, they actually are quite easy to find. Uh, and they've done all sorts of projects as you know, on their own and in collaboration. But this Astro Twin project in, in particular, I, I couldn't find. So my um, project, Orphanage, um, attempts to reconstruct that, what, what I heard in, in 2003. Oh, that sounds intriguing too. That sounds great. Uh, is there anything else that you um, that you'd like to add before I read my? It's very long. This note of praise that I've got here, but it, uh, I, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, do you have, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, just just thank you for as ever for your for your support um, early on in both of the projects I've done, and um, thank you to to everyone who's who supported. Um, Hem press so far and, and bought books. We um, I keep saying we is it's just it's just me doing all this, but it, it always feels it just it always feels odd to say like you know the singular with these sort of when it's like a press. But yeah, um, the we 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 publish everywhere. Um, publish everywhere. God, we post everywhere. Um, we've so if you're um a resident of of Canada. Um, it, we've we've tried to set the price so um, pretty much anyone can 
can purchase books um, from from us through the through the store. Uh, we're currently looking for booksellers. So if you are um, a independent bookseller and would like to um, publish, I keep saying publish instead of put out or, or whatever. Um, sell, that's the word I'm looking sell, for. Yeah. Um, books, <laughs> and, and get in touch. But, um, but otherwise, no, just um, as ever, for your, for your huge gratitude that I get to do this and um, might get to sort of be a peer with writers that I, I greatly admire and not not um, uh, not not a reader or not just a reader. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I so here's the note of praise. I always I try to end each episode. I don't always do it, but I, I try to end each episode with a note of praise. So this is this is my note of praise for Hem Press. Josh Alsop's Purge Fluid is a visceral, luxuriously visual and descriptive, unique in its diction, playful for the mouth and the brain. The book starts inside a whale. There are gods and saints in awkward and macabre situations. The work is full of kinetic and frenetic energy. I wanted to bounce off my chair and fly reading this lively and exotic work. I, and I was just looking at it again. I was like, oh, this is this is great. I uh, yeah, so it's very great. James Knight's Cosmic Horror begins with a visual poem, an explosion of equations and color. The work is an engagement with language and reality as interpreted by hallucination, science juxtaposed with art. Warping happens like Dolly's Clock or a work by Max Ernst. Words from the poems remixed as Vispo, disported. Like Alsop's Purge Fluid, Knight's Cosmic Horror offers us the visceral, grotesque, and macabre, an engagement with the body, particularly how sound acts as a myopic space, giving a claustrophobic sense sensation. It's easy to imagine scenes from Alien, District 9, or other sci-fi films as inspirations for these. Poetry is under glass like an experiment on an operating table. Who knows if it will survive or turn into some uncontrollable and grotesque monster. I've already written about J.D. House's Just Meet Not God, the first in the Hem Press catalog last August, but I will add that the muscularity and vigor of language, engagement with art, life and death are something Hem Press titles have in common so far. I can't really praise my own work, Trouble, published by the press. That seems like a conflict of interest somehow. But I can say that Richard was a methodical, patient, and sensitive editor and has made the work much better than it was in its manuscript form. Richard created a provocative and enticing cover and did an excellent job on layout and design. Hem Press has supported and promoted Trouble before, during, and after its publication. So great thanks for that. In her book, The Three Steps to the Ladder of Writing, Hélène Sixou writes, writing is learning to die. It's learning not to be afraid. In other words, to live at the extremity of life, which is what the dead, death, give us. Hem Press is making space for work that risks, that pushes beyond well-mannered boundaries into extremes with courageous use of language, intersecting with the bloodiest, most visceral and weird aspects of life. I think of Lorca's sense of the duende making art in the presence of death. This presence is what drives innovation, intensity, and creative energy. It's what moves the writer to write. Otherwise, what's the point? I'm looking forward to seeing how Hem Press will navigate these possibilities with its future pub publications. That's that. Thank you very much. It's um, lovely to lovely to hear, um, especially on the publication day of James and Josh's book. It's um, books. It's um, you just you never really know how people are going to respond. Just so to uh, hear. Um, praise for those texts um, is is lovely, and, and it's great to work with you on on trouble. Um, 
end to to um to get to get such a, a joyous and um frank and, and just generous text out into the world was um really really thrilling for me so so thank you for for writing for writing it my pleasure i'll also i'll be putting that up on the show notes too on the site so it'll be uh, the words will all be up there as well and you can you can put them wherever you like whatever place that you'd like to be, put them so thanks to Richard Kavner for being on the show, to Jennifer Peterson for the intro and outro, to Charles Earl for processing, and to all of you for listening to and sharing the episodes each month. Stay tuned for our final episode of 2022, another segment in our ongoing poetics series in December. This time it's the poetics of photography with Charles Earl and a whole new thread I'll announce in the December episode. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The small machine talks.